I got involved with Node really like the first week that it was released, and and uh, right away just loved it. I don't even want to say it was a small team; it was one person. But the real thing that sealed it for me was that every time I hit Control C, it stopped. The competition for people's attention has never been crazier. When a designer often approaches an open source project, sometimes it's just really hard to get the thing running. The people who design the contribution process are the ones that are heavily engaged. You know, you have to get people to design a process that is not for them, it's for you know, everybody else. Hi, I'm Steve. And I'm David, and you're listening to Don't Make Me Code, the bi-weekly series where we discuss developer experience and some of the unique challenges we face building developer-facing products. Don't Make Me Code is brought to you by Heavybit, a nine-month program for developer-facing startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. And if you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us at dmmc at heavybit.com or on Twitter at Don't Make Me Code. Welcome to Don't Make Me Code. We're here with Michael Rogers, community manager at the Node.js Foundation, and we are going to talk about building communities today. Awesome. Nice to be here. It's a beautiful, beautiful studio. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, as we were saying before the top of the show, you have a, some really interesting experience to both of us. I mean, building communities of developers around lots of products and, and companies, and uh, you've been doing it for a long time now. And so I would be really interested just to get a history of you and how you got into this and why you do what you do. Well, I think you know when I was really young and started to get into computers, I ended up getting involved in the hacker community just because there was a community there and there were people online that I could kind of connect with about things. And so part of uh, doing something and getting really into it to me has always been that community aspect. So when I actually started to like you know work in software and built in software, there was a natural kind of attraction to to do open source. So a little over ten years ago now, I got like a job basically doing full time open source at the Open Source Applications Foundation at the time, and and even there, it, there was just a huge draw to the kind of community aspect of it. So not just the development, but how do we get people to care? How do we get people engaged? Like what are the what's the methodology there? How do we think about this? It's an amazing guy uh, there called Ted Leung. He's he's kind of a guy behind the guy with a lot of Apache stuff and a lot of older open source, but uh, he he was amazing uh, and was kind of a mentor. Um, and then from there, you know, worked at Mozilla and the CouchDB company and uh, DigitalOcean and all over the place. Really doing a lot of just open source work, a lot of community stuff, a lot of outreach, a lot of evangelism. And yeah, I think that's kind of my my background as far as that goes. Um, in terms of Node, I got involved with Node really like the first week that it was released, and and uh, right away just loved it. And then to be you know involved in a community so early, you see a lot of like kind of opportunity to to do this and that, uh, and to really bring people together and to drive things in a really positive direction. So ended up doing a lot of that work until now. You know, at, uh, when the Node Foundation started, I was asked to come on uh, and you know do community work in both kind of healing a fork and creating more sustainable practices around the contribution policies and that kind of stuff and. As that's you know done better and that's really working and and is kind of phenomenal now. Um, turning more of my focus to the the foundation sort of uh, internal execution around you know, communications and events and like a much kind of higher level role. So. And so you were involved with Node even before there was an official foundation or, or really even official community around it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was released at a JSConf EU, which was a conference that my friend Jan Lernhart uh, was running, and uh, so I, I knew that it was announced like right away. I kind of watched the thing. I got like a, I think an early video from Jan about it, um, and uh, uh, that weekend um, I asked just on Twitter like, "Hey, has anybody written a proxy in this yet? Because nobody had written an HTTP proxy in Node yet." Uh, and I had spent like four years working on an HTTP proxy in, in Python that was 
very, very smart and advanced and did all kinds of things to make it faster. And it was thousands and thousands of lines of code, like really, and had all these dependencies and stuff, and it was just massive. But it was pretty quick. So I sat down and I went, oh, I, I want to I check out Node. I know how to write an HTTP proxy. I'll, I'll see you know, how far I can make it. And in like four hours, I had a full HTTP proxy that was maybe 40 or 50 lines of code, and it was faster than my Python proxy. So that, that made it pretty easy to just be like, you know what, I don't think I'm going to write Python anymore. I'm <laughs> probably going to write Node from now on. <laughs> That's an amazing story for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, it's a testament to the power of, of Node and the community around it, but also like, I mean, you know, we talk about developer experience on the podcast, and that was what sold you. That yeah, yeah, you know, you know, what it was more than anything. So it was, it was very fast, uh, and I, I, I didn't have to jump through a lot of the hoops to make it iterative uh, and, and quick, kind of in I/O the way that I did in Python. But the real thing that that, that sealed it for me was that every time I hit Control C, it fucking stopped. <laughs> like every time you, every when, like when you, times. yeah, yeah, when, when you hit Control C in a node process, it actually ends. There's nothing you can do to make it not end. At, at that point, there wasn't even a way to hook into an event to stop it, right? And uh, oh god, Python! Like I, I had so many, you know, alternative threading libraries and da, da, to try and make Python just stop. Like all these things called killable, whatever the module was that you were trying to do, um, and still you just could not get Python to stop. Sometimes, and so that was really like the the best piece of, of DX in the early days. Wow! So they were able. I mean, for lack of a better word, they were able to land you that way, mm. and then you know you come on and help the community grow. Like, is that a showstopper ingredient? To having a community is having like a good developer experience and code base to start with. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that's important to attract people. Um, but but I also I'm also a big believer in especially when you're starting something new and you're building a community, um, people will show up to provide competencies that you show that you value, even if you don't have them, right? So if you have terrible DX, um, as long as you're really nice to people that show up to make it better, um, you'll attract people and those people will show up. And especially around something like a like a platform or a new language, like there are a million people that want to be the first people to write this particular thing. As as long as they know that that thing is valuable um, and, that, and that the community is going to embrace it, then people are going to show up to do it. It's pretty interesting to me. So, I mean, we heard your story of like kind of how you started writing Node. I, I'm interested to hear, yeah, how did you go from there to actually working on the Node project itself? Like, what was the impetus for that? Well, I mean, back then it was, you know, a really, <laughs> I don't even want to say it was a small team. It was one person. Like, you know, Ryan, <laughs> Ryan Dahl was running the project and writing all, pretty much all of the code. Um, and so there was some, some really early code around streams. Like, <laughs> you know, we, we were trying to unify the interface by which you would kind of iteratively process data, right? Um, at, at the, when Node was first released, it was actually really inconsistent. So if you wanted to, say, take data from a file descriptor and send it to an HTTP thing, it was a totally different API that you would have to kind of mold between. And so, you know, I wrote that Ryan had written an example of like, you know, what it would look like to just kind of have a standard way to put these two things together. And so I wrote a, a patch that was just like, hey, here's a pump utility. So that's like part of Node. And then later Ryan just, you know, made that, you know, the dot pipe argument. So to, the dot pipe on streams, right? And back then it was really, you know, you just send a pull request around. Maybe pull request didn't exist yet, but you just send a patch to Ryan on GitHub and, and, uh, and or maybe pull requests did exist, but they were like really shitty at the time. Um, <laughs> and so you would just you would send the code to Ryan, and Ryan would would look at it and talk to you and accept it. And you know, especially that first year, there was probably about you know between six and twelve people that were in the San Francisco Bay Area that would get together periodically and and really kind of like whiteboard out some of the more hairy parts of Node. And you know, it was like me and Tim Caswell and Isaac Schluter and Ryan Dahl and Matt Ranney. 
and Paul Cuerna and a couple other people um, that would, you know, this was when Ryan was breaking the entire API for all node programs mm. every week, right? <laughs> there was a lot of iteration going on. So back then we would just kind of all get together and knock it all out. I thought what you said about the values of the community was really interesting that mm-hmm. if you express a certain set of values, even if you don't have those skills, people will come to the project. How do you communicate that? Does that come across in code or in events? It comes across in people's behavior uh, more than anything. I, I think that there's a lot of things that you can do to a project that may seem like a really good idea that are actually kind of counter incentives for this kind of these kinds of contributions, right? So, for instance, like if you if you hand out commit bits to people that you know do code work uh, or new API work, but you don't for tests or for documentation, um, you're not actually valuing that skill set, and and so people aren't. You're not going to grow a community there. You're not going to have a ladder for people to get more and more involved in the project, and and you know you're not going to end up getting a lot of those people. A lot of the areas that you know in the Node project where people said you know nobody is ever going to show up to do this kind of stuff. It just sucks. We're going to have to pay somebody. Are some of the biggest growth areas that we now have in the project just because we we decided to really value those skills at the same level that we value you know somebody really understanding a crypto library. And I think to to some extent, especially in the early days in the Node community, it was growing so fast that it created this vacuum, right? Like there there was really nobody doing community events. Um, and so when I stepped into do a community event, there was a huge amount of like support for that and a lot of people that wanted to 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 attend. And then because I, I did it in such a way that I wrote a lot about what it was like to run it and tried to help other people get them up and running and grew it. You know, it was just it was very helpful for other people to know that they had the support of somebody and and you know like this uh, this some semi-established brand like NodeConf that they could also run an event with. And so we were able to grow uh, the community event space that way. And beyond the actual contributions, that that part is really interesting. You disseminate this kind of cultural rule, if you will, like. These are the things that are important to us right now, and so to get mm-hmm. the community to grow, we want these kinds of contributions. But then, I think that also touches on the process and politics, and like how you as an organization go about getting people to contribute. Like, how do you make the developer experience of contributing to the open source project better? Yeah, I mean, it's not always even what you do, right? Like, like you can say, like, these are my values, or these are the kinds of things we would like to have people. But if other people don't care about them, that doesn't really matter. Like, like this, this is why Node.js doesn't have a roadmap right now, right? The reason we don't have a roadmap is because we're not going to say, hey, these are the things that we care about, but we haven't written yet. Like, the, the Node.js roadmap is whatever people show up and write code to do that that actually makes sense to have in the Node platform, and it will land when it's ready, and it'll get released on on you know a standard timeline that we have for major releases. And that's actually been a huge incentive for people to show up and do things that uh, we didn't think that people would show up and do. And, and a lot of things that people thought were very, very important, it turns out that nobody actually cares about enough to write. So why have that blocking a bunch of other features in a roadmap, right? That sounds like a really fantastic way of doing product prioritization, actually. Mm-hmm. If you have a community large enough to decide for you and they're able to contribute effectively, there's your roadmap. Yep. Yep. And I mean, as long as there's not a lot of huge artificial barriers to contributing, mm. uh, then, then yeah, you're going to be able to grow a community really well that way. Um, and, and also, I mean, like my favorite trick actually is that, I, like, if we, if we want like a new uh, microsite or we want some kind of like new utility in the Node project, I will go in and I will write the worst code. <laughs> like, you know, it'll barely work and it'll look terrible and it won't follow any kind of guidelines. And that, that's a great thing for other people. Like, now there's a bunch of things for other people to do. <laughs> like, if you want to get, 
get involved in this project, you can definitely clean up this code because it's terrible. Um, and there's no, like a lot of people too, especially like once you're kind of established as a developer and, and people are, are sort of like, you know, asking you to speak at conferences and stuff, people are like, is it okay if I touch this or okay? Like I make it bad enough that it's clear that, yeah, you can, you can touch it and fix it. Like this is clearly not like intentionally this way. <laughs> Yeah, I remember hearing somewhere that the best way to get someone to answer a question is not to just ask the question, but to actually post an incorrect answer to it, and then you'll get a ton of people flooding in to correct you. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, like the the way that we treat pull requests in the Node project now is that the default is for every commit to land, and if it's not going to land, it's a process by which you say what needs to change or why it shouldn't land. It's not you know the person submitting the code has to convince us that it should go in. It's you know get, give us the the changes that need to happen and. Why and then this is the educational process and and every person that sends code we don't think of as somebody smart enough or dumb enough to do this thing we just think of it as like if it's not right yet then this is an educational opportunity for us to get them to the point where it is. This is kind of sidetracking, but is there like you want to probably keep things pretty lean and mean in the code and like do you ever have bloat issues that result from? No, one of the reasons why we don't get this, and we don't think about it as much as code bloat as we do um, API bloat. Like we, we we have a lot of API that we wish that we could get rid of that we will never be able to get rid of because people depend on it. So we're very very cautious about taking on more stuff. And really, I mean, the most of the value in Node is in the ecosystem. So the the smaller that we can keep the core API, and the more work that we can do around performance and, uh, and basically stability, uh, the better. So I mean, the code base is growing, but a lot of it is like crazy performance optimizations. One of the reasons why I think people get into this is that if you have a BDFL model or you have a model where just a few people are kind of maintaining the project and a bunch of people, other people are sending them stuff. They feel like they're trying to review too much shit, uh, and and at some point, either they're telling so many people that they can't get in code that those people are going to wash out um, and, and not want to work on it anymore, or or they're just going to have like you know a lot of pending things and then just land them all at once. We've found that the more people that we bring into the decision making body, which is like the the so hard decisions get made by the TC. Most things land without the TC getting involved. But if it's like controversial, the TC gets involved. The TC, uh, yeah, the technical committee. So the technical committee. So we we've in the Node project since the foundation started, we went from about five to seventy committers, and then most commits land just you know with an easy consensus between the the committers that that cared to review it. Uh, but like maybe five percent of contributions uh, end up being a little bit more complicated, a little bit more controversial. They can't reach a consensus. It it bubbles up to the TC, which is about 18 people that are, um, and that's that's constantly growing as well. And those people are just like more like relied upon deep decision makers, people that have a longer history with the project that we count on as like a, a tiebreaker. And the more that we expand that body, the less anxious they are to take on more API, right? <laughs> like the the thing is, is like when you start to share the actual responsibility for something, people view everything that comes in as something of a liability, it's something that they're going to have to maintain for a while, and people are just a bit more cautious. And it's just a lot harder to get, you know, eighteen people to agree that this giant new feature is a good idea than it is, you know, one person over drinks uh, because at, at this conference they decided that it would be totally rad to add all of the Python standard library to something or whatever, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I was going to say, if nothing else, just getting a consensus among a growing number of people gets harder, and. And I mean, like we, you know, we're still seeing contributions go up in general, and that's because we've made it really easy to get the things done that are supposed to happen. And also, I, I think that Node, at this point in Node's lifecycle, 
the community has a much better understanding of what is in the ecosystem and what is in core. And we're not really trying to grow core if we don't have mm. to, right? Like we have an amazing ecosystem. Let's rely on it. There, there, nobody has an application that only uses Node Core and not stuff from NPM, right? Like that's not a thing. So we we don't need to feel like we we're competing with our own ecosystem with what goes into core. So yeah, another thing, you know, since you've been talking about the growth and the changes in the Node community over time. I thought it was really interesting when you were talking about the kinds of contributions that you're seeing and the changes there. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that, that's really changed in this kind of GitHub era of open source is that the majority of people partaking in open source don't identify as like open source people, right? Like, there, there's a lot of people doing a lot of stuff, um, and you know, most of them are. Engineers that work at a startup, or you know, they they work at you know what they're doing, whatever, and this is like a part of their life is just sending a pull request every once in a while to a project that they depend on, or logging an issue, or whatever. Um, and so, when you look at the total number of commits that are happening on GitHub, the vast majority of them are actually happening from people that like have less than 100 commits a month, right? And and it just grows as you go down that. So casual contributions account for, you know, the largest amount and also the the fastest growing amount of contributions that are happening in general in the ecosystem. Is that partly do you think an offshoot of the package system like someone can write a single package like leftpad and then, you know, that that's a relatively small contribution and Um, I mean, JavaScript definitely has sort of a, a fatter tail than some of the other ecosystems, but this is like a Open source wide trend on GitHub. This isn't just Node. Um, I, I actually I have a graph with this cut up by language, and <laughs> it's not it's not just it's not just Node and JavaScript. Like it's it's you know mo- almost everywhere, and and you know that small package thing is certainly true in Node, but also I mean GitHub made it easy to make a repository and to mm. make a project, right? And and also to collaborate between projects. So. I mean, re- rewind like ten years ago, right? And say like you you depended on an open source project and you wanted to get code in. Well, you'd have to you might have to learn a new version control manager. You might ha- <laughs> you were definitely going to have to learn an entire new contribution flow and how to get that commit in. You're going to have to figure out where to send it. You're going to you might have to sign the CLA. You might have to like read a giant amount of docs on just like how to configure and pull it down. And every project is different, so there's not a transferable skill set between all these projects either, right? So, you know, that just, it was very hard to get involved in open source. Like the, the bar, the barrier to entry was very high. That's why everybody involved mm-hmm. in older open source identifies as an open source person because, like, part of the barrier to entry was also like adopting like a philosophy uh, and a set of like, you know, values. Um, now, you know, just people in software in general are, con- are involved in public software. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're working and doing things on GitHub and are engaged in some way. And, you know, if, if you really want to have a sustainable Project nowadays, you you really have to gear more towards these casual contributions. You have to gear towards people that may not show up again, that may show up just to do four lines or whatever. You can't have a bunch of big barriers to entry in the way, and this is a really hard thing for projects to do because the people who design the contribution process are the ones that are heavily engaged. They're <laughs> they're not the ones that are casually engaged. Um, so you know you have to get people uh, to design a process that is not for them. It's for you know everybody else. So it's interesting, you know. I've noticed this a lot with the open source work I've done too, where you talk about this sort of fat tail or, or long tail of contributions. Like that, mm-hmm. that's definitely a trend. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm sort of curious, you know, how, how much time do you spend actually trying to design a process whereby some of those people can become more serious c- contributors or even maintainers or part of this technical committee, or is it kind of just expected that you know some of these people are just going to come by and give one commit and disappear? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you have to be okay with them leaving, but retention should definitely be a goal, right? <laughs> you want you want some amount of them to stay around and, and to continue to level up. I mean, this is definitely a goal with with the No Project, and at every level we've grown and had more people. Um, th- there's a there's a small kind of a chart that I have in, in an article that I wrote called uh, Healthy Open Source, but it basically says that like as your user base is growing, the list of people that you can identify as contributing in some way needs to be growing, and then also the people that can review that needs to grow, and also the people that can handle higher order decision making needs to grow. And all of these, like you know, you're probably looking at an order of magnitude between each of these steps, but you know they all need to grow in proportion to each other, or else you're going to burn out some amount of those people. In the No Project, like this has gotten really difficult because the the size of the project has grown. So there's there's not all of this is entirely transferable if you have like a single small project. But one of the things that we did that was really effective was that we started to cut up the project in, into more slices, including things that traditionally maybe wouldn't have been a community resource. So like the website, for instance, like we're the only uh, project that's involved with the Linux Foundation that like we our community runs our own website. Um, and but the website is like a great place for people to initially get involved, right? There's a lot of people coming that, you know, know how to do some kind of web development to see something that they can change. Um, and that that's really their first kind of entry point. Um, and there's also an evangelism working group where people just, you know, write blog posts and try to promote node. Um, and you know, there there's sort of there's Two buckets of barriers to entry. Some are technical and some are cultural, right? So part of it is that people are just worried about being vulnerable and like trying to get involved with these people or how to get involved with these people and how to acclimate to this culture and if they'll be accepted. And then there's all of the actual technical stuff, like like I don't know how to do this, I need to learn it. So having like an area like a, like a website or like an evangelism working group where people can acclimate to the cultural side, um, and then all they have to do is learn the technical stuff to get more involved. We see a, like you know we see a lot of people make that path. And in fact, I mean, one of the the earliest people like came in through the website, got involved in core like messing with tests, I think, and then just started taking on more <laughs> and more stuff. And now he's like on the TC for core. And I think I think she she may have been the first female committer ever in the Node project. Came through the evangelism working group to the website to core, I think, on docs, and and is now like getting more involved as well. So you you see people you know break through these barriers that way, and and it's really really good to see. And, and also cutting things up this way allows us to vary the the contribution process a little bit between each one, right? So, for instance, in the Node project. There's this very sophisticated kind of branch structure uh, because we we everything lands in master and then we port them off to these branches. So the cleanliness of like you know the the sign off messages and and all that like in order to make this actually work we have to have some cleanliness there and that is a barrier to entry. Like it's one that we have to kind of live with and that we have a lot of like onboarding and documentation and kind of soft skills to get people through. Um, but it is a barrier. But like on the website you know master deploys like who cares like I don't I don't care if it's you know what kind of merge that you do. Or like anything else, like we're not really worried about the cleanliness of the of the commit logs and stuff like that. And in the same way that we are around core, and so that that's another like you know lower barrier to entry for people to get more easily involved. And then from there we can we can easily level them up. So you talked about you know growing the community and growing the foundation, and also having a healthy organization around it being a, a critical part of that. That you can't really have a healthy community without a healthy company or organization behind it. And so how do you ensure? The health of the organization and making money, basically. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it also depends. I mean, like, we tend to talk about uh, like you know the one percent of, of open source projects, right? That like need this kind of infrastructure. I mean, most open source projects are like a library that a bunch of people use that maybe ten people will contribute to. <laughs> like, this is the majority of what's going on out there, uh, and that's all really valuable. But 
Yeah, for for you know the projects that really do need some kind of institutional support for whatever reason, or you know, a project just becomes enough of a of its own ecosystem that people are depending on it in a way that uh, they can't rely on a single company anymore. So they need a foundation or some or some kind of neutral body that's going to outlive it. You know, some other company when they get involved. There's there's a there's a lot to talk about there. And it really depends on the project, to be honest. Like. I mean, the the way that the Node Foundation is structured is, is very different than, say, like the Free Software Foundation uh, mm-hmm. or the OSI, right? Like most of our budget goes to marketing and PR because we're competing with Java and we're competing with like you know proprietary platforms that are huge and we we really want like it's good for our community for Node to win and for in order for Node mm-hmm. to win like we're gonna have to spend money on these more traditional areas. And so our structure makes a lot of sense and we're that's why we're very very different than like the, or the Python Software Foundation for instance, like very very different. Like we're yeah. But that that's our particular need. And that's also why we have this giant wall between the foundation board and the technical side so that the technical side the the committers and the contributors can own the project uh, and they really do have a wall for all of their decision making authority between them and like the foundation's board. And so, what would your advice be then to a, a company that's starting out trying to build a business on top of open source software? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends. It depends on your relationship to it, right? I mean, I think all businesses are built on open source, right? All technical businesses are built on open source. Like, there's there's nobody who's not relying on open source in some way. Um, I think that you you need to understand like how closely your business is tied to this open to a open source project or an open source platform or community, right? Like, you know, I, you know. Instagram was highly dependent on Postgres and Python, and, but you know, uh, if if those technologies failed overnight, like they wouldn't necessarily fail overnight. Like they had a product, but you know, if you're uh, Cloudera, like you're you're heavily tied to this one particular open source project, uh, so you probably need to take like more responsibility for it and make sure that it's like a, in a really particular place. So, yeah, I mean, it it, it really really depends. Um, I, I I've seen it go every way that it can go. The the one rule that I would Say is that if a if a company is uh, supporting an open source project, right? Like um, it, it is paying for the majority of developers, or it is providing the majority of the leadership in some way. The company needs to be able to scale its investment with the growth of that community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you start to see tension take over when. The company, and their, or at least their investment uh, in that project, is not growing at the same rate that the community is growing. Right? You know, Node had had a pretty you know famous kind of thing with the contributors and, and Joyent, who was owning it at the time, with the IOJS fork and everything. And, and a lot of that really just came down to like, no company is growing as fast as Node is growing. <laughs> uh, you know, like or at least at the time. Um, and so, no no company could ever keep up with the level of investment that you had to do uh, with something that was growing like that uh, and still growing like that. So yeah, I, I've seen it go many, many ways. Um, and I mean, you know, Joint eventually just you know did the right thing and put it in a foundation. And now the foundation can, the foundation isn't scaling. You know, the amount of money that comes into the foundation with the growth of the community. What we are doing is that we're scaling the community with that, right? So the the, the community is now running the project, and the project can grow contributors as fast as the community around Node is growing. So what happens more often than that though is like, you know, a company shows up to a project and they go, we need to build a community around this. <laughs> we we need to grow a community. We don't have one. And and that's like a that's a really awkward position to be in, right? Where um, you know, it's your responsibility to make people excited about this. Guy Kawasaki, who's who's sort of like the the, the original ev- evangelist for software, right? Uh, he has this great saying that's uh, 
everything that is gold guy touches, uh, <laughs> which is very different than everything guy touches is gold, right? <laughs> which is that he he doesn't try to evangelize things that aren't amazing. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't. I think that you have a lot more control over that when you're a developer focused company and, and you're working on a source project because if it's not gold and it's not great, you can fix it, right? Like you can actually make it better and make it more attractive. And and you 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 need to meet people where they are, right? Like you need to go like, who are the people that would care about this, and why don't they? I, I think databases have the hardest problem with this, and I, I say this with love because I I worked in the database world for a while, but it's it's so so many times like a regular developer, like a web developer. It's like so. Wait, what, so why do I have to care about like you know CouchDB or this or that? And 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 the answer from from the other side is like, let me explain the cap theorem to you, and then <laughs> and you just immediately lost them, right? Like, like this is why why MongoDB won this whole fight, right? Because they didn't try to explain the cap theorem to people; they just assumed <laughs> that they wouldn't know it, and then just you know, didn't write things to the disk sometimes. Uh, <laughs> and so that. You know, because it's gotten so much easier to contribute to projects like this, because there are so many more projects available, it is that the downside? What is the downside of this? You know, enormous oh, growth yeah. of oh yeah. I mean, the competition for people's attention has never been crazier. Um, no, you have to you have to really put it out there. I mean, you're not only competing with other projects for attention; you're competing with like, well, why don't I just fuck around and do my own thing? Right, with the LevelDB ecosystem inside a node, like I could just sit down and write my own database. Like, why do I want to run your database? <laughs> and especially like on, on GitHub, like a lot of the activity is like you know in people's own repos, just doing their own thing. So you you know they have the skills to contribute to your project. And and there's if people are using your project and there is like some some momentum behind it, there's a lot of incentive for people to get involved. Like the the majority of the reason why people don't get involved is just that it's actually hard to contribute to. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of things that you can't see because you're so invested in it and you're you're working on it all the time that are making it really hard for other people to get involved. And it's really hard to step away from that and recognize that. Did Node or any other community you've been involved with have designers involved early on, or was it purely developers? No, not that I can think of. Um, I mean, people have come to the Node project and done various like little design work and stuff like that. I mean, we we've had fun with it in the IOJS days. We we said like, "Hey, what are people's crazy logo ideas?" And then we thread just. Blew up uh, with just most of them were totally just hilarious and unusable, and there was so much like passion there that we just said we're not going to pick a logo. Like we're just going to use a random logo every time. That we we're just going to pull one out of here whenever we need a logo for something, <laughs> and and like that that was really fun uh, for for like the, the short amount of time that IOJS was not merged into Node. I can't think of any projects where designers were really really heavily involved. I mean, I, like designers show up and provide that skill set all the time. Uh, it, again, like if you value it, people will show up. People have shown up to you know do design work on the Node website, and you know, my library request got like a logo just because we put out on Twitter like, hey, we'd we'd love to have a logo, uh, and, nice. and people do that. But it, the thing about design skills, right, is that it, so often a project only needs a designer for a certain amount of time. It's not like a skill set that re- like has to stay around indefinitely, and so they don't stick around enough to be like in a decision making role, which is unfortunate. Like mm. I, I I wish that there was a, a better way to. To work on that, I'll think about that one. Actually, that'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, it came up in our last conversation. How I mean, like you've been saying that there aren't many designers contributing to open source software, and I think part of it is the finite nature of the need. But there are some of us who have been involved as product designers for a long time who maybe could make substantive contributions to you know the nature of the project or like the way the developer experience of the toolset is created. 
Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of projects probably do have a hard time valuing the skill set, though. Like honestly, I mean, everybody's a, a you know backseat designer, like mm. on on the internet, right? Like everybody has an opinion about this thing, and and that becomes really really difficult to manage. Like, and you know, when I was at OSAF, this is like a decade ago, but you know, it was an open source project run by a foundation, and then we had a, a community kind of design process. But what that essentially ended up meaning was that that. The designer just spent all of her time explaining her UX workflows to a mailing list. To, to a committee. Uh, right, right. And well, it wasn't even a committee. It was just like, you know, it was a consensus seeking process. But when you're paid full time to send emails, you're always going to win. Um, and you're generally just going to be annoyed with people asking you the same thing over and over again. Um, so it didn't actually, you know, it was open. I wouldn't call it participatory. <laughs> it, it is interesting, though, thinking about. Like, how do designers contribute to to open source in general? I mean, like you mentioned, we talked about this our last episode a little bit, and and part of the thing that that we talked about was that you know when a designer often approaches an open source project, sometimes it's just really hard to get the thing running or like figure out where to even start or how to how to contribute yeah. to begin with. And so, there's probably something we can be doing better there for sure to to encourage or those types of contributions. Yeah, I mean, as you work your way up the kind of skill set chain, barriers to entry become more and more and more of a problem, right? Um, so with the designer, it's going to be more of a problem than like somebody who you want to come and work on the crypto stuff, right? Like, any, like people who understand how crypto libraries work are not going to be like, how do I use pull requests? <laughs> um, but, you, but you may actually get that from a designer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you've now achieved a level with Node where you not not only have a community around the language, but you also have a conference, several conferences. And we have a community of conferences. <laughs> <laughs> so how do, how do you manage that next level of community? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that the Node conferencing has changed with the changes in Node, right? And as Node has grown, the needs of the community have changed. And so like conferences show up to fill those needs. Like if you're thinking about doing an event for something that you're into, you really got to go like, why am I doing this? <laughs> it's amazing how many people don't actually ask themselves that question and run a conference. Like, like you see a lot of product conferences, like products that aren't platforms, right? Like where, where like you can use it and you can't like, you know, there's no API. Like you can't build some stuff on top of it. Like, uh, you just use it, and people will build a conference around it because you know. Slack has a conference, or what? Like whoever else that you 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 know wish that you were has a conference. I mean, really, like a conference is it, it's a beautiful thing when you do it right and you and you have a mission, right? So if there's a need in the community that is not filled, right? Like we have a community, we can define this community, um, and bringing people together will allow us to do something that we can't do online. Uh, and a lot of that, a lot of the time, is just you know creating tighter bonds between those people by getting them like together. Um, that's why unconferences are still a thing, right? Is that you know you don't actually need formal talks and catering in order to to get people to connect with each other. But I think like in the early days of Node, I was focused a lot on opening up people's idea of what Node was and the breadth of Node and the identity of Node because people most attracted to the project in the earliest days and then also the people that shepherded it on for a while were really interested mainly in backend stuff um, and really early on that started to shift like you know there was IOT there was you know a lot of stuff that fell outside of that identity that people were doing with node so I worked a lot on that and continued to work on it and now that's actually part of the identity of node inside of the foundation is like this node everywhere thing where we're talking about that um, hmm. but in those early days like that was why I was doing kind of talks 
and then uh, it shifted a little bit more into like educational stuff, and and also like Node was growing so fast that I could not run enough events for all these people, and so I started you know writing a lot more about how to run an event, and then other people ran events, and I supported people running those events, and now there's a bunch of people running those events. Oh wow! So you created yeah. a framework for other people to run events too. Sort of, yeah. I mean, I wish that there was more support, but it's it's much more complicated than, than you can imagine to give support to somebody in Brazil, you know, mm. running an event. Like, I can't, you know, offer them, you know, my LLC to help instead of anything or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of. Um, yeah, I mean, one is just like sitting down and talking with them, and they'll like ask a bunch of questions, and you just kind of answer them. Uh, when I ran my first event, Chris Williams from JSConf. Worked with me and, and basically did this for me, and so when people started asking me, it was like, okay, I need to do this because Chris did this for me, and um, and Chris is still doing it for a bunch of other people as well. So <laughs> I can't pawn them off on him. But yeah, so there there was like this real kind of uh, community led effort to do a bunch of small events in a bunch of places, and small events are, are interesting because they they track the people that are kind of most invested in the community and so the the, the social ties part of it the, the actually connecting with people part of it is really really strong and, and i'm glad that we went in a direction that was like you know almost all of these events are single track almost all of them are like really intimate like really big breaks like we really prioritize that i think that now notice at a place where you can't do one big community event because there's just too many people and events have gotten much more regional, right? So there's a lot of there's a lot of smaller events now that are really great for all of these communities, and they pull in people like me to speak or whatever just mm. to get people there. I uh, like that model too, because mm-hmm. um, like Amazon, by contrast, has this massive you know, reinvent with it's it's so big, it's impossible for a small company to get involved in an event like that. And um, yep, yep. So, more smaller events seems to be a better way to get more people involved. Yep, yep. And and I think you you also do need those big events like reinvent though. Like I mean they're just they address a totally different set of people, right? Like the the Node Foundation now runs uh, two events called Node Interactive, which are like thousand people events, right? Um, one in Amsterdam and one in Austin this year. And the amazing thing about that event is that it gets a bunch of people like me and a bunch of other core committers to to Node because like we you know we do a board meeting and a couple of committer things there, and we have them speak. But they also get to meet all these people that write Node all day, every day. But they sit behind a desk. They don't talk on GitHub. Like they're not—they're Node users. They're part of our community, but we we have no other access to them because unless their company buys a lot of fifty tickets and sends all of them, they're not going to show up. Um, and you know, like, the, and a lot of those those companies that are building all of this stuff around Node really need to connect with those people as well. And so it's just—it's very—it's—it's. It's, a totally different purpose. Like I wish that it had a different name <laughs> because it's literally that different. Like the only thing that's the same is that you're bringing people together, but the goals are just totally different. And, and I think that they're they're both really important to have, um, and they need to be structured really, really differently. What you said about the unconference, I thought was also interesting. Mm-hmm. That it's not just that getting people casually together is important, but that you can run entire events that way, and that they have just as much value. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, some some of the the most valuable things that we've ever done have been on conferences. I think like you know the Node Streams API and I think like the Domains API, like all these things were worked out in like a summer camp in Marin nice. where I do NodeCon. Yeah, NodeCon. Yeah, yeah, I saw that this one too is going to be up in Marin. Yeah, yeah, NodeCon Adventure that we do up there. Um, and it's just it's you know a little unconference. This is the last one, but yeah, it's been it's been great. 
And so the people that are coming to that are, are very uh, like heavy contributors for the most part, or the people that are deeply involved. Traditionally, yes, yes. Um, I mean, we've always tried to, to broaden it a little bit and, and get more people out. But th- the reality is that like you're not going to go and sleep in the woods with a bunch of people from a community that you're just like a little bit into, right? <laughs> <laughs> like that's not a thing that people do. Um, you're not, you're not going to like you know sleep on bunk beds in, in a summer camp for kids. Like if if you're not. Pretty yeah. into it. That's funny. <laughs> this all sounds so obvious as you say it now, but I've never really heard someone explain this all rationally before. Like, you know, the giant event where you have multiple tracks and talks, like those are educational events and you try to bring the masses in. And it's just really interesting to hear about all that and the stratification. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, we can do as a foundation um, that I think, you know, if, if a media company or, uh, or just a for profit corporation is running like a giant event like that, um, is that, you know, they're, they're just there to make the technology grow and to get more people from, like, from the business world, like, involved and engaged in it. And that's certainly a, a goal that we have, but also, like, we can think about each of these people that sit behind a desk all day as a potential future contributor and a potential like future future person that is much more engaged in the community than they are now. And so we can gear the content and some of the engagement in such a way that we kind of pull them in that direction, because that's you know part of our mission and one of the reasons why we exist. Uh, so you know it's not it's not purely just you know oh, well, what are people asking for? Let's give them that. There's also like a healthy dose of like you know people probably also need this, um, and it would be good for the community if we did this. Mm. The one I mean, we kind of touched on the, the relationship between you know a few times like the business and an open source project, and I still feel like there's a missing conversation around um, how yeah, like D- David, your use case basically like you're trying to build a company on top of an open source platform that you're creating. Yeah, and it's it's different. Like you know, there's different kinds of open source, right? Like there's something like Node, which is like a giant. Community of contributors mm-hmm. now, and th- and then there's something like Convox where you know we essentially bootstrapped the project, we built most of the code, we've now opened it up to the community, and we're starting to see some participation from other people, but still the bulk of the work is done by us. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it it really really depends, and like you know, is your community mainly going to be on the user side, or is it mainly going to be on the on the developer side, right? Like, do you need a ton of people engaged in the core of it, or do you really need people building on top of it and building a platform on top of it? And that's where you need your engagement, because you need a pretty different strategy for each of those things, right? And you need to figure out what you're going to mm-hmm. optimize for. I mean, like, if you're optimizing for people to build on top of it, then you're you're going to optimize a lot for saying no to things, right? Like, you you want them to be built on top and not in it, um, and then you're really just going to be taking all of this this feedback for features that people want into like, oh, well, how do I make that something generally applicable to a bunch of people and and allow people to build that on top of me, it, it really it really varies between them, right? I think that the most important thing really is just that it's participatory. I mean, like you just you, you want to encourage participation at at all the levels that you can in order to to compete. Um, and I mean, you know, open source is is much it's more and more of a loaded term every day. Uh, but you know, open source is, is is a license, and and so much of what we talk about usually when when we say open source is really we're talking about participation. We're talking about you know collaboration to some extent. And that's really the, the marker of like you know a project that is uh, growing and healthy versus one that's not. But I mean, at the, at the end of the day, like it's it's whatever works for you and your community. I mean, there there are a lot of people you know totally happy that you know to use Go and to never ever be able to get any real changes into Go <laughs> if you don't work at Google. A lot of people don't like. There's a ton of people that don't mind that. Like they're they're okay with that relationship. Um, and you know, Google is putting a ton of resources into Go. So if you if you're 
if you agree with that direction, um, it's not like they're leaving you hanging out to dry. But there is like a lack of participation from people outside of Google and Go um, in in the core of it. And there, there's a well, there's a huge amount of participation in in people building on top of it, right? And a lot of people building great libraries and, and applications on top of it. So yeah, I mean, it's it's it, to some extent, it's what are you optimizing for? I think you know, for me, what what I've tended to work on is is cases where the community it, growth is outstripping what can be sustained by whatever the structure is underneath. And so you have to kind of break apart that structure and make it more participatory. And, and in some cases also you, you've got to bring it into like a neutral body. Like it, it's, You're a victim of your own success. Like If enough businesses depend on you for their business, then they need to know that that technology is going to outlast a business. <laughs> yeah, they're going to stop trusting you as, a, as an mm-hmm. individual entity. Yep, yep. Yeah, is, yeah. You can be too successful. <laughs> is there a clean line somewhere like hearing you talk about the distinction between contributing to core versus building on top that when I just off the top of my head when I think of you know businesses built on top of open source software that they've created I see a lot more of the companies where the they're managing the core and then people are building on top whereas node or or other communities where where people are actively contributing to core those seem to go more the foundation route. Yeah, I mean, so I think that most successful businesses optimize for growth, right? And um, if you're a platform, you can grow quicker than you can invest in it. Maybe not your value, but the value of the platform can grow much quicker than you grow the business around it, right? Um, so, like, look at something like Slack, right? Like, Slack mm-hmm. makes no qualms about the fact that they are a platform, mm-hmm. um, and that, that you know, I think they even said recently that like their goal is that the value on top of it is worth more than Slack is, right? Um, that's a very specific thing that they're trying to do, and and with Node, the value on top of it is is hugely valuable and and shared by a, a ton of different companies. And so for Node, it like it needs to be in a body that is neutral, that mm-hmm. is not you know particularly around one company, and and you know there are other analogous platforms as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, if if you're building a, a new business, like a brand new one, um, and especially if you know you're you're not in, like there isn't another company or another piece of software in between you and your customer, it's it's much more natural to have a slightly tighter grip of control on it. I think one of the one of the problems that you have though is just like the the growth thing, right? Like, how are you going to grow mm-hmm. to meet all of these needs? Like, are you going to invest all of the, those resources, or is a community going to build around? Like doing those resources, and as that community grows, if you can't grow the investment that you're putting into it, then you're going to end up get, getting into a tension situation. There's this one looming, like the last thing on the board there, uh, the fake it till you make it. Um, <laughs> I know. Well, I guess we kind of touched on that. Just like you have to kind of create inertia however you can, and I, I don't know if you have more to say about that specifically. Like, how was there any early was there any early effort at, at Node or any other place that you've been to to really? Spark inertia by getting a team to. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about like the evangelism side of that, right? Because I, I do think that's important when you're promoting something. Like when you're promoting something, you're not talking about how many people aren't using it. You're, you're talking about specifically about the people that are using it and how rad it is and how positive it is. Um, but it, also, when you're building a community, you're really only talking about the positive stuff. Like, and, and in fact, like if you're if you're trying to build a community by flaming something else or saying that you're better than it, like don't. Um, you're going to attract like a lot of really negative people and people that have a really high tolerance for negativity, uh, which is really going to screw you up down the line. Like, um, always stay positive. Like that's that's the the number one rule is like always stay positive. Always be saying positive things about about yourself, about your community, about other people doing stuff. Um, part of fake it till you make it in terms of evangelism is like just 
talk about the people doing cool stuff, even if it's not that big a deal. Like you know, and ma- make it be a big deal. Make it like a an interesting story that people care about. You know, it, it could be you know one startup, you know, doing some stuff with you know five people, and and sure, like you're not Java, you're not like in, <laughs> in some giant data center somewhere serving a million people, but like you could be, and you might be someday. And like here's here, the path to that is a bunch of other people like getting uh, engaged and inspired by the stories of people like actually using your software. Yeah, and as a small company, I think it's really important to elevate people so that they feel important. And what at whatever scale you're at, it does seem like that's how you grow, not just by staying positive, but also by celebrating the level that you're at and, and making sure that you're you're helping everyone along with you. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, like <laughs> this is a really small thing, but like one of the things I started doing in requests when I realized like I did not have enough time to continue maintaining this library was like people would send a really good pull request that was like really solid. And I'm like, that's awesome. Uh, you commit this now. You can commit, <laughs> please, please do that. Um, and so it's it's not just saying like, oh yeah, you can't get in stuff. Like, hey, let's all we're just commit or no. Just like here, you do it mm-hmm. now. You are now the expert on this. And like deferring to people when when they know things, like um, deferring to like your community to to ask about a thing on even if it's just on on social media, right? If somebody asks about like, oh hey, this thing, like you might know the answer, but if somebody else knows it really well or is really proud about it, like point them at them and and elevate them as well. Thanks again to our guest, Michael Rogers, for joining us. And Michael, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they find you online? Uh, Just go on Twitter. Uh, I'm M-I-K-E-A-L. That's how you spell my name. All right, thanks again for being here, and we'll see you next time on Don't Make Me Code. That's about all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a DX topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us at dmmc at heavybit.com or on Twitter at Don't Make Me Code. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.